So if you would open your Bibles to the book of Romans, and these evening uh, uh, services we're going through this beautiful chapter on the, on the Christian life and, and these commands of, of how, to, how to live as a Christian in Romans chapter 12. So open to Romans chapter 12, and we'll be looking at one verse, verse 12 today. And as we've seen so far, these commands listed in Romans 12, they are given to Christians. They are only possible for those who have been redeemed for Christians. And this is why Paul has spent 11 chapters, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, 11 chapters telling about the gospel, what God has done. He systematically lays out the gospel in these chapters. And then in chapter 12, he tells us what we are to do, what it looks like uh, to be a Christian, what the Christian life looks like. So we've been going through these verse by verse, and we come now to Romans chapter 12, verse 12. So hear now the word of the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we, as always, need your Holy Spirit to be with us. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be on me, that I will speak your words, that I will truthfully uh, convey the truth that is, uh, that is found in, these, in this one verse. Father, I pray that you will open all of our hearts to hear from you. And Lord, I pray that you will allow this verse, as short as it is, uh, to penetrate into us and to change us. Father, I pray as we leave here today, we will be different. We will be more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We will love him more. We will bring him glory better. And Father, we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have any of you ever had a field guide? You know, those little books that, that have... Uh, birds or plants or flowers or, or, or wildlife. And the ones that I've seen are, are these little small books and they have plastic pages. So if you, you drop them in a stream, they're not going to be ruined. And they're small because they're meant to be carried in your pocket or carried in a backpack when you're hiking. And they really give you just the, the bare minimum that you know, need to recognize uh, some of these uh, flowers or birds or, or, or wildlife. And they'll have a picture of them and then a, a short description that's easily reckon, recognizable. But the key is they really need to be concise. And I think if there was an entry in a field guide for a Christian, right? how do you identify someone who's a new creation in Christ? We look the same. We haven't changed in outward appearance. I think if there was a, a field verse uh, field guide verse, it would be this one, Romans 12, 12. And I think a Christian is a person who should be, or, or at least should be, or a person who really does rejoice in hope, a person who is patient in tribulation, a person who is constant in prayer. So let's, let's unpack this one verse here, characteristic, and, and let, let, let's, let's uh, unpack these, these one characteristic at a time to, to get a fuller picture of how we should be able to identify a Christian. So first it says rejoices in hope. Well, this should be the description of every single Christian. Each one of us here should rejoice in hope. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, do you rejoice in hope? If someone was to observe your life for a few days, would they say this is a rejoicing person? This is a joyful person that has hope? Or would they say this is a person who complains? This is a person who's stressed? There's a person who's tired all the time or busy all the time. Would they see us as rejoicing? And what is it meant to rejoice in hope? Right, a person who rejoices in hope is a person 
who has an overwhelming sense of excitement, a positive excitement. I think the best illustration of someone rejoicing in hope is a child on Christmas morning. Think of a child on, on Christmas morning with eager anticipation for something wonderful that's about to happen. And they can barely contain themselves. They, my, my kids would start to vibrate as they were getting ready to open their presents. And this excitement is evidenced by laughter. It's evidenced by smiles, by goodwill, by peace, by contentment, by joy. And I think a, a good diagnostic question that we can ask to see if we have this type of joy is, do I laugh easily? Do I smile often? One of our best friends, Dorothea Dickerson, she's now with the Lord. She had this type of rejoicing. She laughed easily. And her daughter, Dara, is the same. See, when you're with her, there was much laughter. When you're with Dara, there's much laughter. She even laughed roaringly at my lame dad jokes. It didn't matter. She still laughed at them. They came, the laughter came easy. And it really didn't matter the joke. The joke wasn't what was, was important. It came from within. It came from this, this uh, rejoicing in it. And, and this joy was contagious. Anyone who knew her. And this joy wasn't dependent on outward circumstances. No. It wasn't, it wasn't like it was Christmas morning all the time for her. Again, those of us who knew Dorothea, she, she had a very difficult life. She battled several illnesses, one of which claimed her life at only 50 years old. But it wasn't that they had a lot. They had a lot of money. They were a graduate student. I was amazed. They made less than a buying teacher. And they, they, uh, rose, they uh, were able to raise a family of four. And they taught us the fine art of dumpster diving. Right, Lynn? They, they were amazing in how they were able to stretch a dollar. And her attitude was always one of rejoicing, not of complaining. Rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. And it's not the same. It's not the same as simply rejoicing in the Lord. So this verse says that we are to rejoice in hope. So we looked at the word rejoice. Let's look, let's look a little bit at the word hope. What is hope? Well, hope is an anticipation of something, an expectation of something that we don't yet have. Like a, a child's joy at Christmas time is the expectation of opening the presents, of opening all those things that they hope to get. But even the word hope is, is, has a different meaning in Scripture than it does in our everyday usage. See, we often use the, the word to denote something that we want to happen, something that we, we hope to happen, but, but the outcome is uncertain. For example, David has a football game, his last football game on, on Thursday. I hope it's not going to rain when we're there. I hope they're going to win the game. Well, David said that's certain that they're going to win, right? But I hope, I don't, it's not certain that it's not going to rain. We do live in Albany where it seems to rain every other day here. So it's something that we want to happen, but it's not certain. But this is not the way the Bible uses the word hope. In the Bible, the word hope is, is much closer to our word of faith. Faith. Uh, really, hope can be thought of as, as future faith. The, the word hope is, is used to describe the confidence that we can have in some future promise that God has given to us. See, a promise from God is not like, like hoping it's not going to rain. It's not uncertain. A promise from God is guaranteed. We don't have it yet, but if God promised it, it's as good as money in the bank. It's good as if we possessed it already. God's promises are absolutely certain. It's more certain that the sun, than the sun will rise tomorrow morning. More certain that you'll draw your next breath. Biblical hope is an absolute trust in God's future promises. Now, for the Christian, 
For the person who's justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, we have a certain reality, a reality that is true for us at this very moment. And I want us just to, to go through quickly what this reality that is true for every single one of us who is born again. The first reality of us is that we are a new creation in Christ. We have been born again. We have been united to Christ by faith. This is called regeneration. And this is a current reality for every single believer. The second thing is because of this union with Christ, our sin has been transferred to Christ. It has been punished in Christ. And Christ's perfect righteousness has been transferred to us. Our legal status before God is now not guilty. Before it was guilty. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. We are in a state of grace. We have peace with God. This, my friends, is called justification. And this is the current reality for every single believer, every single one of us. Third, not only has our legal status before God changed from, from guilty to not guilty, our relationship with God has changed. God goes from being a righteous judge who justly condemns us, who are rebellious sinners. He then becomes a loving father who adores us as his beloved children. And this new relationship entitles us, entitles us to unhindered access to the God of the universe. Again, just think about that. This is called adoption. And this is the current reality for all believers. The fourth thing, because of our union with Christ, another current reality is that the power of sin has been broken in us. We have the grace that enables us to obey God. Not perfectly, of course, but we actually have a real ability to obey God, to please God. We do not have to sin, those of us who are in Christ. And we can truly, truly bring joy to God through our obedience. And this is called definitive sanctification. So these four realities, this describes the current reality for every single believer. These four characteristics allow us to have incredible intimacy with God, gives us tremendous peace, gives us great joy, and it gives us great joy right now at this moment. And each one of these things, each one of these things in and of themselves would be reason for us to rejoice, reason for us to rejoice continually. But this glorious reality is not the reason for rejoicing found in this verse. It's much more than this. See, this hope in which we are to rejoice in is not our current reality, as great as it is, and it is great, and it, we should rejoice in it. This verse calls us to rejoice, not in our current reality, but in our future reality. And what is this future reality? Well, again, I'm just going to go four quickly, four things that is our future reality. First of all, we are in a state of grace at this moment. And we are promised in the future that we will never, ever fall from this state of grace. There is nothing, we are promised, there is nothing in all creation that can, take, can snatch us from God's hand. Paul tells us earlier in, in Romans chapter 8, 30, or 8, 30, chapter, 30, chapter 8, verse 39, that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we know that God will never leave us. We know that he is with us. He will walk with us through any trial that we go through in this fallen world. And this is called eternal security. My friends, this is our hope. This is our future hope. The second thing we have here is we know that in any trial we face, we know that it's meant not for our harm, but for our good. 
We know that God is in complete control of every single thing. And he has promised that all things, all things will work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purposes. This, my friends, is called divine sovereignty. This is our hope. The third thing, the third future hope we have is we know that we have been delivered from the power of sin in our lives. And we know that we will continue to grow in our faith. And the power of sin will become weaker and weaker. And we know that we will have more and more victory over sin in all areas of life. This is called progressive sanctification. We know we will continue to get better. This is our hope. And fourth, just as we have been delivered from the penalty of our sin in justification, just as we have been delivered from the power of sin in sanctification, we are promised one day to be set free from the very presence of sin. This means one day we will be completely sinless. And we will only and always love God. Only and always obey his will. And not only will we be free from the presence of our own sins, we will be, present, we will be free from the presence of all sin, the sins of others, and from the consequences of all our sins. What this means is that we have a hope, we have a promise, a guaranteed promise, that we will one day live in a restored and renewed creation. A creation that no longer groans. A creation that is restored. There will be no sickness. There will be no suffering. There will be no crying. There will be no death. And this creation will be perfectly aligned with God's perfectly will, perfect will. And this, my friends, is called glorification. And this is our hope. And these four, four things are our hope. These are realities that we don't currently have, we don't currently enjoy, we don't currently possess, but they are guaranteed to us by God's word. And they are as certain as if we already had them, as certain as if they were in our pockets already. And this, my friends, this is the source of our rejoicing. Rejoice in hope. This is the command. This is the description. This is the marker of a Christian. This is the field guide description of what a Christian life looks like. And this command, this command is not simply theoretical. It's not given in an ivory tower. It's not something that's true in, in theory, but irrelevant in the real world, in this fallen world. See, as Christians, we're not naive optimists. We don't deny the reality of this fallen world. Jesus himself said, in the world you will have trouble. In the world you will have tribulation. So we don't pretend that tribulation doesn't exist. We don't pretend that, that in this world is not a, a world of great trouble and great sorrow. And this brings us to the second part of this field guide verse of identifying a Christian. It says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Tribulation, trials, intense suffering, they will come. It's part of life in a fallen world. And it will come for all. It will come to the Christian and it will come to the unbeliever alike. But there is a difference. There is a, a stark difference between the suffering of the Christian and the suffering of an unbeliever. See, the natural reaction that we have to suffering, the natural reaction of the unbeliever is distress, is anxiety, is bitterness, anger at God, looking for someone to blame for the problems we have, saying that complaining, saying, oh, oh woe is me, oh, poor me, oh, this is not fair. This is a natural reaction. Our natural reaction is one of impatience, of wanting the trial to be over as soon as possible, 
of doing anything, anything, ethical or unethical, it doesn't matter, to end the suffering. And thinking that really it's my right to end the suffering. Failing to see that there could be any good that can possibly come from the suffering. Failing to, to learn from the suffering. And my friends, this is the, the complete opposite of the command that's given to the believer. Opposite of this mark that should identify the Christian who is called to be patient in tribulation. We are to be patient. We are to trust God in time of trouble. We're not to be anxious. We're not to despair. We're not to complain. We're not to blame others. We're not to blame God. We're certainly not to turn to to sinful ways of escape. We are to be patient. We are to trust God. We are to continue to rejoice in the hope, the hope that we just spoke about. And in fact, this command is, is so closely connected with the first. See, the hope that, that we are to rejoice in, the, the future promises that God's words guarantees us, this, my friends, is the source. This is what empowers this supernatural patience that we can have in times of tribulation. See, this, this hope and, and this substance behind the hope, it enables us to react to, to the normal trials that we're counting in this fallen world, not in the way that everyone else reacts, not in a normal way, but in an abnormal way, in a supernatural way. See, we can be patient in tribulation because we know we are secure, secure in Christ. We know that no matter how difficult, no matter how intense this trial may be, it can never, it could never take away our peace with God. That is guaranteed. The peace is, is the most important thing that we can have. And that was purchased by the blood of Christ. So ultimately, we are secure. Ultimately, we are in the grip of his grace. And no trial, no matter how bad, no matter how difficult, can ultimately take this from us. And ultimately, no, no trial can ultimately bring us harm, can eternally harm us. And likewise, we are patient in tribulation because we know that God is with us. God is with us in the midst of the trial. He is sustaining us. He is comforting us during this trial. And he is carrying us. And he is carrying us when we cannot carry ourselves. And oftentimes, it's, it's in the midst of, of tribulation that we see God in, in a totally new way. And, uh, we, we experience him in a deeper way, in a richer way, in a fuller sense. I mean, many of you, who I, I know personally, who's, who have dealt with times of intense trials, and you say, God becomes so real. You see God. He is, he is with me. He is sustaining me. He becomes our, our very lifeline. And he reveals things about himself that we never would have known before. His gentleness, his power, his kindness, his goodness, his love. And he reveals things about ourselves, things that we never would have known without being brought to this point, our dependence. Our sin, he, he strips away the, 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 the masquerade, the, the blindfold that we have on, and we see our sin for what it is. We see our pride for how ugly it is. We see our, our love of sense of ease, our sense of entitlement. Think that God should make, give us everything we want to be happy. And not realizing that this is a world of, of suffering. This is a world of work. We have duty, we have work to do that he has called us to do. And we can be patient because we know God is sovereign. We know that God works all things together for our good, for his glory. And as we patiently endure these trials, 
He gently reveals to us. He, he gives us a supernatural vision. He shows us his perspective of what he is doing through the trial. And our gracious God shows us how he is making us more like Christ. More like Christ through, through this current tribulation. He reveals to us how he is being made manifest, how he is being glorified through what we endure at this moment. And my friends, this vision that he gives us, this vision sustains us. We know it's not in vain. We know it is for his glory. We know that we will rejoice in this. And and this strengthens and gives us patience during this trouble. And most of all, we are obedient able to obey this command and respond with patience during tribulation because we know that all tribulation, all tribulation, no matter how intense, is temporary. We know beyond a shadow of doubt because God's word promises it. Romans 8.30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's so certain that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaks in the past tense when he writes about it. He has also glorified. My friends, we are all bound for glory. We know that this time of tribulation is short. We know, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we are patient Because we know that the greater the trial, the greater the glory that we will see on the other side of this trial. And you see that even this, even this patience and tribulation is a cause for us to rejoice in hope. It is the opportunity that God gives us to display our true nature, which is a nature of rejoicing, a rejoicing in hope of future glory. And as with with many things in God's word, these first two parts of this verse, they really combine to, fo- to form a, a positive feedback loop. See, the, the, the more we rejoice in hope, uh, this gives us power to show greater patience in tribulation. And the greater our, our patience, the greater our vision of how God is working through the tribulation. And this gives us greater hope. This greater vision gives us greater hope and leads us to greater rejoicing in this hope, all leading to this upward spiral of glory. It's amazing how God works this. But there's one more piece. There's one more piece that's essential for this to to complete this positive feedback loop. And in fact, it's essential really for the whole process because this last piece is our connection to these glorious promises in which we rejoice. And this, too, stands as a clear mark of the Christian life, a stark and unambiguous field guide marker for what the true Christian is to be like. And this last component we see in the last part of Romans 12.12. We saw rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. So, my friends, prayer is the glue that ties all this together. Prayer takes these objective realities that we just spoke about, realities that are objectively true for every single believer, true for every single person who's united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And prayer takes these external reality and internalizes them. Prayer makes what is objectively real, subjectively real for us. We actually feel what is actually true for us. For, for example, say, say uh, 
a, a child, you know, he has a, a broken toy. Maybe he's like six or seven years old, and he has a broken toy. He's, he's upset about this broken toy. But what if that child just found out that he inherited a billion dollars? And you told him, you just inherited a billion dollars. He doesn't even understand it. He's like, my toy, I don't care about that billion dollars. My, my, my uh, toy is broken. Well, that's how we are. We have, beyond, we have stuff that, that is even beyond a billion dollars that is ours at this moment. There's a hope of what we have, and we just don't see it. We, we are concerned about, you know, you know, I need gas. I've got to fill up my car. Or, or you know, I, I, I've got this really painful guy that I work with that I, that I just can't stand. Or, or I've got this pain or, or whatever. Or even if i got a terminal illness. Don't you understand? That does mean nothing compared to what we actually have and the hope that we have. And what prayer does is prayer allows us to feel this truth. Prayer allows us to know this truth, to experience this truth in the core of our being. And being constant in prayer is to continually have this subjective connection with the divine, to feel the reality. I mean, he's here. The Holy Spirit is in every single believer. That is true. But many times we don't feel it. Prayer is what makes us feel it, makes us know it, make us know the reality of our connection with the triune God. And if you're a Christian, a Christian that does not rejoice in hope, is not patient in tribulation, if these tra- traits do not describe your Christian life, it's most likely because you're not constant in prayer. See, if you're truly born again, you have the same hope. You just don't experientially feel it. And this is why you don't rejoice in this hope. And while it's real objectively, you don't feel it subjectively. So you don't have the the natural reaction. The natural reaction, when you feel it, is joy. You can't help it. It's a natural reaction. It's like it's like the child on Christmas morning. They just they just vibrate because they have the joy. And if you truly felt this reality, you could not help react with joy. And because you don't feel this hope, it's not able to produce the patience and tribulation. Rather than creating a positive feedback loop, it actually produces a negative feedback loop. Because we are not constant in prayer. We don't have the, we don't have the real personal experience of, of the objectively real hope that each Christian has. And this keeps us, from, this keeps us focused on the physical world. Keeps us focused on the, the things that are seen rather than focused on the things that are unseen. And again, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And because we are, are focused on the physical, we are like Peter. Remember Peter when he's walking on the water? When, when Peter had his eyes on Jesus, there was no problem. But when he takes his eyes and looks at those waves, down he goes. And that's how we are. We become filled with fear. Instead of being patient in tribulation, we become fearful in tribulation, which further causes us not to focus on Christ, but to focus on the problems, to focus on the tribulation. And we become blind to the spiritual hope. And all this, again, causes this, this further downward spiral of, of fear and ineffectiveness. Now, it doesn't change the spiritual reality. It doesn't, it doesn't change this reality in which we should rejoice. You know, we're not losing our salvation. All these things I mentioned are still true, but it makes us blind to them. It makes us ineffective in our witness. And it makes us outwardly really indistinguishable from an unbeliever who doesn't have any of this hope. And sometimes there, there, are Christ, there are unbelievers who seem to have more hope than we do. Again, that should, that should be a rebuke to us. But prayer, 
My friends, prayer removes the scales from our spiritual eyes. And not just any prayer. It's, it's not, a, it's not a, a formal, rigid, superficial prayer, you know. Um, but it's, but it's, it's, it's a vital prayer. It's a, it's a living prayer. It's a constant prayer. In constant prayer, this is what is our connection with this spiritual reality. Because constant prayer changes our perspective. It takes our eyes off the things that are seen. It takes our eyes off the temporary and places them on the things that are unseen, the things that are eternal. So, so what is this constant prayer? And I think many Christians really have no idea what, what this means. They assume it must be hyperbole. You can't. It's, it's impossible. How can you pray constantly? We can never. We'd never get anything done. And the reason people say this is because they, again, have a superficial understanding of what prayer is. They see prayer, again, as, as this, this formal hands folded, eyes closed, down on our knees, mumbling the things we want to God. Now, this is one type of God of prayer, but this is not the only type of prayer, and it's certainly not the type of prayer spoken of here. This is not the type of prayer that we are to pray constantly. So what does it mean to be constant in prayer? Well, it's speaking about a state of mind. We are to constantly be in a state of mind that is conscious of God, conscious that we are in his presence, Conscious that he is right here with us. He is experiencing everything that we experience. Think of it if you had a best friend, or maybe even better, a, a conjoined twin that was, that was stuck right to you. And the two of you were together at all times. Every, everywhere you went, you experienced your day totally together. This is what it looks like to pray constantly. That is who we, we have God conjoined to us. Everything we experience, we experience with him through his eyes. And what we need to do is have an ongoing dialogue, an ongoing dialogue with God throughout the day, constantly asking him for his perspective, constantly asking him for his strength when we face a trial, his wisdom when we're uncertain what to do, constantly thanking him for the countless blessings we experience throughout the day. And this is, this is a real ongoing dialogue. See, when we experience a trial, he is right there next to us. You are, you are asking him in real time to help. I see this trial is coming here. Lord, I need your help at this very moment. When you experience a temptation, you know he is right there. He is ready to provide strength to resist this temptation. But what do we normally do? And I'm talking about myself here too. We ignore God. We don't think about him. We certainly don't want to think about him when we're entertaining a, a, a temptation when we're flirting with something that we know is outside his wills, we close his eyes. We say, no, no, he's not right here. No, he's somewhere. He, he's not going to see that. He's not here with me. R.C. Sproul, in his, his radio program, Renewing Your Mind, and his devotional magazine, Table Talk, he would end each program and each devotional with an application. And he called his application, if you remember, Coram Deo, Coram Deo, which is Latin, which means before the face of God. And he frequently said that we are to live our lives Coram Deo, before the face of God. And this, my friends, is my understanding of what it means to be in constant prayer or to pray without ceasing, as it says elsewhere. It's a state of mind that takes every thought captive to Christ, every thought captive to his word. And I think if we can, can cultivate this habit of ceaseless, constant prayer, and that's what it is, it's a habit. It's something that we have to work at, that we have to practice at. It will take hard work. We have to cultivate this habit. But I believe if we could actually do this, it would re-revolutionize re our Christian life. I think it will take us from, from being weak 
and ineffective Christians, you know, barely discernible from the unbelieving world, and transform us. Transform us into to the very field guide picture of what a Christian would look like. One who is constantly rejoicing. One who is constantly smiling. Constantly filled with joyful laughter. Rejoicing in our Christian hope as if it was Christmas morning every day. Constantly filled with, 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 with just, just joy and simultaneously patience. Patient with whatever tribulation that God ordains for our good and his glory. Being continually comforted and supported in this tribulation. Aware that even though we may not understand how God is using it, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is doing it. And in this we can rejoice. And we are constantly connected with him through this prayer. So my friends, this is the command given to us. This is the mark identifying us. So let us pray. Father, I do admit that this is something that's difficult for me. This is difficult for all of us. But Father, these truths are, are real for us. The, the, the current realities of who we are in Christ and the, the future realities. And Father, it is so silly, the things we do, to try to prove our worth, to try to gain our security by our, our measly little efforts when we already have them. All the, more than we can even imagine, are already our possession in Christ. So, Father, why do we seek to do these other things? And even worse than that, we seek to do these other things. We seek to do what only you can do, and we neglect to do what you have called us to do. So, Father, I pray for everyone here, everyone who hears my voice, Father, that you will give us this rejoicing, that we will constantly rejoice, that we will be patient in whatever tribulation that you give to us. And we will constantly live before your face in constant prayer, understanding everything through your perspective. And Father, in this you will change us. And in this you will be glorified. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.